Welcome to Advent Week 3 and our lecture and podcast for this week at St. Luke's. I'm Pastor Jen, and I'm going to follow up with um, Jad's story of Eve and Eve delivering God's story of love and what Pastor Jeremy talked about with Sarah delivering God's story of joy and move into another group of women that deliver God's story of hope both then and now. We move into a deeper relationship with God and God's story that God has been writing from the beginning of scriptures as we move into the book of Exodus, where we find in the very first chapter two midwives, Shifra and Puah, who will help deliver God's story of hope, not only to the people of Israel, but show us our call to deliver God's story of hope as well. Now, in order to begin with with Shifra and Puah's story in Exodus, we have to kind of understand the story of Exodus and what it's trying to do and to look backwards as well. Now, the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, but it is also the story of God's people becoming the people of Israel, becoming the chosen people, um, being brought out of slavery in Egypt by Moses, being taken into the wilderness, being formed into community, um, given a set of rules, a set of guidance of morality of how they will live separate from community and culture. And also a story of how they will live as people who worship God as the one true king, as the one true God. But primarily, especially for our text this week, we see that the Exodus story is God's plan for deliverance. It's a story of God's liberation. And that the work and the story of God is a liberating story for all humanity. But it begins as a liberating story of God's people of Israel. Now, uh, the book of Exodus, we tribute mostly that work of deliverance to Moses. Moses, who is the one who was, was, was raised and becomes the one who goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go and delivers the people out of slavery through the, through the waters and into the wilderness for 40 years. But Moses's work of resistance and deliverance is foreshadowed by this first act of social resistance in chapter one, by these two midwives, these two women that we don't hear of any time after this. In fact, Moses wouldn't be able to deliver anyone had it not been for the work of these two women first. Now, before we get into their story, in order to understand the depth of the power of Exodus as a book of liberation and a book of deliverance, we have to go backwards into Genesis for more context. So remember last week we left off with Sarah. Sarah becoming and delivering joy into the world as the mother of Isaac, uh, the mother of the promise. Um, Sarah and Abraham had been given the covenant promise from God that they would be uh, the the parents, the ancestors of, of a great nation that that they would, their descendants would multiply and would be as many as the stars in the sky and that they would be given land. And we see this promise beginning with the miraculous birth of Isaac to this 90 year old plus woman. Now, if we move from that story forward into Genesis, we see that Isaac is grown up, marries a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca has two children. These two children are Esau and Jacob. Now, when she is pregnant with them, they wrestle in her womb. And in Genesis 25, verse 23, scripture says that the Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb 
two different people will emerge from your body. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now, this explanation that God gives Rebecca, the younger son displacing the firstborn, happens actually again and again throughout Genesis and throughout scripture. We see it with Cain and Abel, we see it with Ishmael and Isaac, we see it with Jacob and Esau, and later we'll see it with Jacob's children as well. Not with the youngest, but with a younger brother. We move on to Genesis 26. Famine has gripped the land where Isaac, Rebekah, and the children are located. And the Lord appears to Isaac. And after telling them to stay in the land and not move yet into Egypt, that will happen later, he makes the promise to Isaac that he makes to Abraham. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will keep my word, which I gave to your father, Abraham, and I will give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky, and I will give you this land. You see, God is continuing God's same covenant of promise. The promise that was not only given to Abraham and Sarah, but a promise that began with Eve, with the story of love. I will be your people. I will dwell with you. Go forth and and procreate. This is the same story of love that was seen in the story of joy. And now we see it in Genesis, continuing on, even jumping ahead into Jacob's lineage. Jacob has 12 sons, 12 sons. And Joseph is one of the younger ones who is, is, is seen as Jacob's favorite. And his older brothers sell him off into slavery. He's thrown in a pit. They actually think that he has died. Years later, as they grow older, famine comes to the land that they are in. And Jacob and his sons are starving. And so the sons go to Egypt for food, seeing that their brother Joseph is not dead but has found his way into becoming the trusted advisor of Pharaoh and that they are the one, he is the one who is able to give them food. And so in this moment, we see reconciliation happen. Joseph, who is one of the younger son, reunites the family, reunites the 12 tribes of Israel, settles them into the land of Egypt, where all of the descendants live in this relationship because of Joseph, this relationship with the Egyptians and the relationship with Pharaoh that is one of not necessarily mutuality, but one of respect. And we see this happen until the end of chapter 50. The end of Genesis, the last chapter, begins with the death of Jacob. And that story is important because in it we see the respect between the Egyptians and Joseph and his family. It says that even then the Egyptians mourned Jacob for 70 days. And after their mourning period, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and asks for permission to leave and go to Canaan as one of his advisors, permission to go to Canaan to be able to bury his father. Not only does Pharaoh let him go, but Pharaoh lets him go with servants, with elder statesmen from Pharaoh's household, with elder statesmen from the land of Egypt. There is this pomp and circumstance of this burial ceremony that, that parades Jacob's body back to Canaan. So you can see this connection, this this mutual respect that has happened between the people that are Israel, the 12 tribes, Jacob and his sons, because of Joseph and Pharaoh, the king. And then when, at the very end, Joseph dies. And that's where we begin Exodus. The very beginning of Exodus gives a genealogy of the Hebrew people. 
In verse 9, they are called Israelites for the very first time in Scripture. And while it says that the, the descendants number 70, which is a vulnerable and fragile and a small number, the narrative continues that improves that God has continued to protect them and to keep their numbers growing, it says. But the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. And now a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now it's interesting because the writer, he's telling a story of deliverance. He's telling the story of God's liberating work from God's people. And so we're going to get the story that is going to delegitimize the king, the Pharaoh, (laughs) even by calling him a new king and never giving him a name. Okay, so this Pharaoh, this new king, he feels the threats of this growing Israelite people, of these people uh, who are ancestors or descendants of Joseph, and he doesn't know Joseph. He has no ties to these people. There is no longer anyone from Joseph's favor, family that has favor with this new king, this new pharaoh who has new ways and who in this chapter is very irrational. There's no loyalty to these people. In fact, now he sees the Israelites simply as a threat. Now he sees them as a threat, if you read carefully, not because they're going to rise up and rebel, because they might band together with Pharaoh's enemies. And as verse 10 says, they will find a way to escape. Now this new king, which by the way, that would have been an insult to the Egyptian Pharaoh, because the Pharaoh was the the son of the sun god and would not be seen uh, in the same realm as a king. Kings were underneath Pharaohs. But he was worried that they might escape because the economic structure and national security of Egypt depended on the people of Israel. You see, the economic structure of Egypt had been built on the back of these Israelites. And the more and more they grew, the more and more it was a threat that if they left, if they escaped, everything that the Pharaoh had created would fall apart. And so uh, you'll see he begins to stop calling them the Israelites and he begins to call them Hebrews. Now, to call them Hebrews meant that they were people that had no identity. They had no common uh, identity with one another. They had no land, that they were powerless people to to change their circumstances. It's seen in a derogatory way to call them Hebrews. They were seen as nothing but part of the structure that would help to build the Pharaoh's power. So what Pharaoh does next actually fulfills a prediction that the Lord made to Abraham in Genesis 15. You see, in Genesis 15, the Lord says to Abraham, but the Lord, I have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, where they will be oppressed slaves for 300 years. And this is where it begins. So Pharaoh devises a plan to oppress the Hebrews even more, thinking that if they work harder, if they work longer hours building bricks, making bricks for the storehouses, they won't have time to procreate. So he adds more labor to them. Now, now one theologian says that storehouses are a metaphor for state policy. Storehouses are this elitist control of being able to create economic surplus for the accumulation of Pharaoh's house hold and and the empire and the imperial state on the backs of common people that had no identity. However, 
it doesn't work. And so we see in chapter one, this repeat where, where Pharaoh tries again, because the more the state oppresses, the more the slave community multiplies. And that's because Pharaoh doesn't realize he's not dealing with just a people, he's dealing with God's people. And that this is about God's covenant and God's promise. And no powers of this world will thwart the work of God's covenant people. Pharaoh repeats the first punishment. He adds more how, more hours to them. And you see this growing tension. The more accumulation of, of, of work, the more the monuments of storehouses and of empire power grows. Because Pharaoh thinks the greater the buildings, the more permanent the monuments are to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people, the more that it will show control over the rest of the people who are not Egyptian. In verse 12, it says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. So much so that the Egyptians, not Pharaoh, but the Egyptians now started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard work, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. So here you see this need for liberation, this need for deliverance. Joseph and that, that memory of Joseph and who Jacob and his family were is gone in Egypt. Now there is no favor. Now there is just this growing deep resentment building, not only between Israelites and Egyptian, but the people of Israel and the state and the power and the empire. For the people of God are being oppressed by kingdoms and power structures of this world. Now, every time Pharaoh plans to oppress them even more, God's covenant plan continues to work and continues to subvert the Pharaoh's work. And so the Pharaoh has one more try. And that's where we begin our scripture today. The king of Egypt, it says, spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, Why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? And the two midwives said to Pharaoh, Because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're much stronger. They give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and becoming very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Now, we're not sure if these midwives were Hebrew or Egyptian. The wording is a little odd. Um, They do have Semitic names, um, which is interesting because Pharaoh has no name. And so the first names used as this new king comes to power is these two women, Um, And here's the thing, midwives were not commonly used by all people. Not everyone could afford them. So it could be that these two women were enough to accommodate all the people who needed midwives or they were supervisors of other midwives because midwifery was the biggest profession for women at the time. Now, Shifra's name means beauty. 
but Pua means shining one. Now, some think that Pua could have actually been Moses' sister, Miriam. But the YP in Hebrew means to shine, but the PH means in Hebrew to cry out. So these two women are shining beauties who will cry out. These two women who continue to allow God's story of love and joy and hope to be delivered because they stand against and defy Pharaoh, allow the shining beauty of the people of God who will one day cry out. Now, it is crazy that Pharaoh would actually want to have all of the baby boys killed because even though he's worried about their numbers, he's also he's also killing the workers who will be the future economic security of Egypt. So we see that he's completely irrational. But what we see is that these women fear God. They are in awe of God. That the, the quest that they are being asked to do by the king not only subverts their profession, which is to bring forth life and to help women bring forth life, but it subverts the purposes of God, whether it's God as God's people of Israel or God as the one who delivers life into the world. What's interesting is that they choose, if they're Egyptian, they're not only defying their pharaoh and their king, but they're choosing the Hebrew people who were seen as discussed by the Egyptians over their own people. Now, if they're Hebrew, they're women who are subverted and, and who, are, who are seen and, and feared and, and seen as a threat. They are standing up against the pharaoh. But here's what's interesting too. Not only do they disobey Pharaoh, but when they're called into Pharaoh's presence in question, the midwives don't point to God as is seen in other social resistance movements in scripture. They don't, they don't talk about God. In fact, they don't even admit their disobedience. Instead, they shame the Egyptian women. They, they live into the stereotypes of Hebrew women using the word vigorous, which would have been the same word as animals, the strength of animals that they can give birth on their own. But if you also look, the word vigorous shares the same root word for the word life. Cameron Howard says, while deceiving Pharaoh, using the language of vigorous as the root word of life winks to the reader. You see, the Hebrew women, they are saying, are full of life, and their identity resists death. What's beautiful is the midwives also don't blame the Hebrew women either. They don't say it's the Hebrew women's fault or that the Hebrew women are, are doing it quickly before the midwives can get there. No, they just point to the power and the strength and the vigor and the life-giving liberation of these Hebrew women that they have nothing to do with, that points ultimately to a power within them or in the world that brings forth life that can't be stopped by anything in this world. One theologian writes, what counts is that Hebrew mothers are invested by God with dangerous, liberated power of life, which no one can deter. Now, this is a perfect way to understand the work of these two women who truly foreshadow not only Moses's work of liberation, but truly foreshadow God's liberation that happens throughout scripture. 
God and God's people are always at work liberating against the power structures of oppression and the power structures of evil. And we see it not only happen with Moses, but we then see it happen in the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus goes and delivers himself, delivers his body to the empire and to the powers that try to defeat the power of God through Jesus and try and keep him quiet. And by surrendering himself to the cross, defeats not only death, but defeats evil and injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. So what we read in this story is that the story of these two midwives is the first act of social resistance. It's the first act of social justice. It's the first revolt against the state that we see. They are in awe of God. They fear and respect God. They see that what they are asked to be done is not only unethical to who they are as midwives, as people who are meant to bring forth life, but who they are against God. And so they see this act of Pharaoh as more oppressive abuse and injustice against a vulnerable people. And so they deliver hope. They deliver the hope that they will allow boys to be born. They deliver the hope that allows uh, and, and, and makes the way for Moses, especially if Pua is Miriam, especially if Pua is Moses' sister. She already knows how to protect Moses so that Moses the deliverer, who is delivered out of the reeds, will be the one to deliver out God's people. But they, they begin to walk the journey which others will walk throughout scripture to prove that God is a God of liberation. They deliver children and oppressed people out of the hands of an evil and oppressive king. They deliver God's story of hope and begin the story of liberation in the book of Exodus. Exodus is about the transformation from oppression to freedom as a book, but this liberation of people from socio-political economic oppression that ultimately delegitimizes the throne of Egypt is brought about not just by these two women, but these two women co-creating with this this intentionality of God. They show that God's vision and plan for the world will not be halted by humanity and that God's promise will not stop but always delivers liberation to all God's people. I found this great quote that says, against such a force of oppression, there is only an old promise. An old promise and the mothering that persists among outcasts a mothering force that refuses to halt or capitulate. So as we move into week three, and we look at these two women who with God delivered God's story of hope, we have to ask ourselves as we prepare and wait for the kingdom of God to come again in Christ, how are we midwifing hope into the world? How are we continuing to, to mother a, a persistent, in a persistent way to liberate people, to stand in the gap, to create moments of social resistance, just like our vows of membership says, standing up against evil, oppression, injustice in little forms and in large forms, 
and standing up against any injustice against vulnerable people, against God's people, to deliver a story of hope in our daily lives. That's how we prepare for the second coming of Christ, and that's how we celebrate the Incarnation, which is the liberating story of God's love, joy, and hope. See you next week. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Office Hours of our Your Week with St. Luke's podcast. We've got all the pastors here, and we're continuing in our Advent series of God's Story Delivered. And today we're talking about Exodus chapter 1, actually, um, where we start with the midwives, Shifra and Pua, and um, hope is delivered this week. And so let's talk about these midwives and sort of um, who they are. This is a this is one of those ways in which uh, um, the story of God could be thwarted. Um, God, be, we have with Eve the beginning and the birth of humanity um, and fullness of humanity um, in Eve and who she was with love being delivered. In Sarah, we have the, the birth of the Israelite nation, but also joy being delivered as God continues to use someone who is trying to do it their own way um, to continue God's promises. But today we find in Exodus 1 that um, the Israelites that had grown through um, Joseph and the 12 tribes who had known the Pharaoh in Egypt and there had been a relationship, these people have died out. And now we have a new king of Egypt who does not know the Israelite people, who does not know these people and is actually threatened by them. And this is where the Israelites begin to be used as slaves and to be punished. And the king and the empire really tries to to stop God's story through the Israelites. And we have these midwives. So let's talk about Shifra and Pua and what and who they are and what they represent. I mean, they're the most famous characters in the whole Bible, right? Hmm. I mean, everyone knows these two people. Common household names. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Midwives. Kids are named we after love them. them. We and use them yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, like, we always talk about this. I I think we do. Like, how there's so many unique people in Scripture um, that we need to learn their stories and who they are. And and these two people play, like you said, Jen, such a pivotal part in this story of of these people being present in the world, remaining present and known, um, and stepping into liberation. So, I mean, they're key. And it's a shame that they're not known. Well, and it's it's continuing the story of women in scripture who mm-hmm. go, you know, I know you said to do that, but I'm going to do this <laughs> instead. Yeah. So it's women who are ex- uh, giving or, or expressing their agency and who are making choices for themselves and um, having to operate within uh, the the system that they're they're given, but but also going, you know, I, I think it should be different. I think it I think we need to do something different than what our context is telling us we're supposed to be doing. So. Well, and if you listen to the lecture, we don't know if they were Hebrew. So we don't know if they're Israelites. We were their midwives to the Hebrews. We don't really know their culture of origin. Um, and so we don't know their relationship with God. And um, we just know that they're told by the king, you need to stop 
make you need to make sure that these women don't have any more baby boys. Right. That none of their baby boys will live. And it says that they feared God. Right. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I don't think this is the way we should do it. Right. Yeah. So that that fear, they feared God uh, in verse 17. Um, there are allusions to no knowledge or relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's something we don't know their nationality. We don't know their their cultic practice. But there if anything, if they weren't Hebrew, the Hebrew people that they worked with and lived with were an influence on them, a witness to them. Um, because they had this this knowledge, this this relationship uh, with God, and fear is kind of a loaded in American or English uh, term. <coughs> well, in the CEB, it actually says respect. Respect, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I yeah, think yeah. there's there's again that idea of relationship. There's that idea of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love in the same way of, of the, in the last podcast we talked about the whole uh, sitcom kind of like hijinks. hijinks. They mm-hmm. kind of have that same thing when when they get called in. Of why are you why aren't you doing what I've asked you to do? They go, I. Oh. I mean, they're talking? having the babies too quickly. I mean, we can't, we can't do anything. It's like Lucille Ball in the best we can. Also, this like this kind of interesting dig towards the oppressive culture, where it's like uh, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Specifically in this story, Absolutely. like not looking at it like from a bigger perspective. Just wow. in this story, there's this mm-hmm. interesting kind of um, rejection of that oppression. You know what I mean by naming that. In, in the excuse. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, Rabbi Kay, who's a, who's a friend of Jen's and came to speak to the confirmation class about Judaism. So our confirmands, as they become full adult Christians, understand how to love their neighbor. Um, he, he, one of the kids, our confirmands, they have such good questions, ask, why are the Jewish people so, throughout history, so oppressed? And, and Rabbi Kay offered a, a response that said, you know, uh, for us as a people, uh, we we never really conformed our identity, and and we, we think about like the 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 kings um, before this of Egypt. They were they knew they knew Jacob. They knew they had this relationship, but this new one doesn't. And um, and there's a fear that these people won't conform. They're 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 going to be a threat. Um, they keep their language. They keep their cultic and religious worship. Uh, they keep their identity. Uh, it, it, but that also seems like from a from a perspective of oppression, they're far away. But these two women, they're close to. They're not afraid. Uh, they're not afraid of, 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 of these people. They are in relationship with them. And so I think that that also speaks to proximity um, and how we live our lives. These two, whether they were Hebrew or, or Egyptian, they were in close proximity to people. They saw oppression, they, and they knew not to live within it and to be a part of it. Um, and so that's why it's such an pivotal, important well, it's interesting too. I hadn't thought about this till you said it, Chad. Um, we live in a world that seeks to conflate, much like you see in the New Testament with the conflation of the Pharisees mm-hmm. and the and the Empire right. in Rome, to conflate religion and government. But this is actually, if you really read Scripture and you dig into it and actually own the story, this is the beginning of when you see. That 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 the empires of this world is not the story of God. Right. It's not the kingdom of God, and there is and all the way to Jesus. I mean, Jesus, Jesus died because of our sins. We say, mm-hmm. um, and um, because our sin was to be in 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 
cahoots with the empire and we we try to stop anything that threatens that and this is the beginning of that this is the beginning of 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 two women saying no this isn't the way god's story is supposed to go and i'm going to stand up against the empire i'm going to stand up against for the oppressed people and and begin social resistance which is what jesus stood for um everything jesus taught jesus whole death jesus resurrection was against I'm going to stand up to oppression, mm-hmm. oppressive systems. Um, and we see that all the way to Revelation. I mean, yes. honestly, that's the end of the story, too, is that God goes, oh, okay, I'm just going to bring my kingdom here and usher right. in my kingdom here on earth. Um, and I, I think we forget there is this political aspect um, where God's people are always supposed to live not conforming to whatever to the empire is, right to, to the, the power empire and the powers yeah. that be yeah. Yeah. so to really bring it back the divine <laughs> spark is about pushing back and asking questions right it's using that knowledge and that love and that blessing that was given to us to question and say mm, no this isn't right this isn't the way God's story is being written yeah. we're going to write it with God in a different way and God's willing to let us push back against the things maybe we shouldn't um to practice right. some of that so that, you know, maybe we, we practice some of that rebellion. We practice some of that pushing back with our parents or with, you know, those those safe spaces in some ways. And and that actually prepares us in, in some way to be part of that cosmic battle, that cosmic struggle between the kingdom and the empire um, to, to, to figure out over time where, where should we push back. And these midwives actually get it right. <laughs> they yeah. actually get it right the first time is to go, you know, I don't think I don't think that that Pharaoh is the one. I don't think Pharaoh's got it right. Um, maybe we need to push back in some different ways. Man, this is a fantastic series. Like I hate yeah. to stop and just kind of yeah. <laughs> but no, really. Like when you look at the through line, like reaching back, looking at Eve with uh, birthing choice and exploration and humanity and then Sarah laughing and birthing nations and so now these midwives challenging or or pushing back against the pharaoh's orders and helping these women to bring people into the world still that will you know what I mean like this is fantastic I love this and to birth people of resistance yeah you know yeah. They're, they're not just birthing people who are oppressed they're birthing people of resistance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that become that definition of resistance and yeah. become that the 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 people who are oppressed by society mm-hmm. are also people with great strength mm-hmm. and and that is that is hope mm-hmm. they birth hope um, mm-hmm. by by standing and saying no we can do this and we can do it differently yeah, and right. we will not allow god's story to be oppressed and stopped right right they birth hope by creating an opportunity for there to be a tomorrow right? yes yeah and yeah. i don't think that i i can't imagine they could have seen the whole picture no oh, yeah. they could not have seen by saving these children or this one particular child or, or any yeah, of that. Yeah, because they weren't the midwives to the whole, Correct. all Israelites. No. <laughs> so, so, but they, they could not have foreseen that in, in the next phase of this, there would be a Moses and there would be an Exodus and there would be, they couldn't have foreseen the fullness. Mm-hmm. They just knew that they were called to play their part. Right. They, they had, right. they had one part of the story. Right. And, yeah. and that was okay. Right, right. And that's for all of us who say, uh, I was talking to a young person the other day, you know, one person can't make a difference. It's like, 
Yeah, they can. It's the only and way have, difference is made. Right. right. And we never know the one difference we're going to make to let, you know, resistance and hope be born could be the person or the situation or the thing that's going to write a chapter that God needs to be written yeah. and the story yeah. of yeah. of love and joy and hope. It's why our concept of leading our lives is so important yeah. is because right. we this have is it. Your right. life. This, this is, is lead your life. This is lead because you, story. you have no idea how a small action that you do can move God's story along or can become a roadblock roadblock to God's story right. and and how you are going to influence someone else by a small word or a small action or a big word or a big action. You, you, the, the big things don't always make the biggest impact in the yeah. small thing. It, you just don't know, which is why we have to live as whole people, mm-hmm. understanding the fullness of our calling to reveal the kingdom. And in order for that to happen, you have to have the faith to believe that everything you do matters. Yeah. yeah. Which is terrifying. Yeah. 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 Like that's hard. Yeah. That's that's both inspiring and terrifying mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Right? Because it can feel it can feel so big. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the small things. It's that that's that starfish story, right? We've all heard so many times, right? I made a difference for this one. You look at me like you've never heard that story starfish. before. No, don't say starfish story like I like I'm supposed to know. <laughs> Every, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so there's this, you know, there's somebody who's throwing starfish back into the water. Sure. And somebody walks up and says, What are you doing? There's hundreds and thousands of starfish. You're not making a difference. And he picks up a starfish and they throw it back into the ocean. I made a difference for that one. Like, you know, sometimes these things seem insurmountable. Um, like they weren't. I don't think they were thinking, we are freeing the people of God. Oh, yeah. No. We are yeah. liberating them. Yeah. They were like, this is wrong. Yeah. We yeah. know these people. That's a, For me, that's a proximity. And and we're going to do what's right. Yeah. And when and you look at, at... That's at, not insurmountable. At civil rights movements and justice movements and the way that we have come closer to bringing the kingdom... You know, the people who did it sometimes knew the the, the breadth, breadth of what they gravity, were doing, yeah. but not always. And yeah. it usually didn't start with people fully realizing the how much a their action was going to impact generations. Right. Yeah. But yeah. they knew that they were called in that moment to do the thing they were called to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these women weren't mothers. Right. Not right. yet. Uh, yeah. And they could have been barren. We're not sure. We don't know. But it was their job to deliver babies. And so for someone to come and say, make sure these babies don't get delivered, uh, it is an integrity issue. And and I I think sometimes we miss that nuance is that sometimes we're asked in our jobs to do things that don't live into the fullness of our calling Mm -hmm. in those jobs. And and those are integrity issues. And sometimes we don't think this has anything to do with God's story. Mm But, but it does because it's an integrity issue where we have to step up and say, no, my job is to do this. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to do anything to endanger or stop that calling, that vocation, mm-hmm. that job. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and those make the differences. Our integrity in our businesses, our integrity in our work, our integrity in our calling yeah. um, is critically important. And, and they stood up to it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, no, we're midwives. And they stood up to it and they owned it. And returning to that, the idea that Believing that everything you do matters is terrifying. Yeah, but that's the cost of being a creator. Yeah. Of having that divine spark and choosing that you are going to shape and mold how some things happen in the world. That's the cost. Yeah. That weight and that that you know what I mean? But they but they stepped up to it and they 
owned it and they took on all of what that meant, even though they couldn't understand right. all of what it meant. And, and they they're doing God's will, not yes. their own. Yes. So this yes. is what I was going to say is, is be, being able to make those choices and discern what is of integrity mm-hmm. requires a relationship with God to begin with. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, right. it, you can't just go, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight the powers. No, because that's what Sarah did. That's what Sarah did. Yep. And you see, it, it is very specific that the midwives respected God. There was a relationship. There was an intimacy. That's where we started, right? Mm-hmm. So so again, going back to our words, if if you're going to lead your life, you've got to learn and live and love. You, mm-hmm. you can't just go, I'm going to go be an example of Jesus in the world without spending time with Jesus. Yeah. And when you do, you're an agent of hope. Right. right. You're an agent of hope. Even in the smallest of ways, there was hope for that starfish, right? But in these small ways, like... Moses is the great liberator, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But but he wouldn't have been alive if, right. if these two, mm-hmm. if these midwives mm-hmm. weren't living into that. Mm-hmm. And so there is hope when we live into that. Yeah. Um, there is hope for an oppressed people. There is hope for, for God's promises and God's grace to be alive and more prevalent in the world. There's hope that the kingdom may be revealed. Mm-hmm. And they stand in the line and set the example for the next story for Moses. Some say Shifra could actually be Moses' sister, Miriam. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the the sister that stands in the reeds, you know, and 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 waits and protects and and that that storyline continues. Mm-hmm. Their storyline that they start continues on through the next few chapters. So. Again, we've got this story, too, of a parent God. If you think about it, I want to circle back to, I think Melissa or Jeremy said that, of you first got to test like Eve did, like test the boundaries and use that creating creator in the small ways, eating the fruit, etc. Then you've got a Sarah, I'm going to test it by trying to do it my way and right. not God's way. And all of those things were critically important, God's love and God's joy being revealed to get to God's hope to stand up and do the big hard stuff. Because yeah. that's what really a parent is actually trying to help their kid do. Right. They, they like here. We, yeah, we're seeing this I'm, maturation. I'm, creating, happen. I'm, I, I'm, I'm working with God, you know, to help form you and shape you and give you the foundation to go out and do it. And, and and be bold and be big and to fulfill God's purposes in you and lead your life in this way. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. So they're my favorite. I love them. <laughs> and I'm really excited yeah. because they're the ones that, of course, create the opportunity to continue the story, which is going to move us into Jesus, the yeah. incarnation. And that that's what this story is doing. It's moving us to understanding how we will then take the next step with Mary um, to receive Jesus. And then what are we going to do with it? And how will we continue the story? So we'll see you next week or we'll hear you next week or we'll talk to you next week on our (laughs) podcast with Mary. Yeah.